this morning, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. The passage is Mark 10, 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Good morning. If we haven't met at this point in time, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. It's great to be able to worship with you this morning, whether you're here with us in person or you're visiting with us virtually. We are wrapping up our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark today. Obviously, we are not finished with the book, but we've come to the end of this section, and we wanted to take the time of Lent and do something a little bit different with it. We wanted to use that as a time to think carefully about the world that we live in. Jesus talked about the period between his first and second comings as the last days. We live in the last day period, and he gave us very clear guidance as to how to live and think in these days with hope and with confidence even when there doesn't seem to be a lot in the larger world to have hope or confidence in. We've been planning this series uh, since last year. I think you feel the weight of it this week even more so, the necessity of it given the events in, in Ukraine as you watch the horror there unfold and as you watch the larger world struggle, both with how to respond to it and how to make sense of what's taking place. You realize, you read through the scriptures, you realize that 2,000 years ago, Jesus told us to expect these kinds of things. And so what you see regularly in your newsfeed this morning, or you see last week, or you see last year, or you see 100 years ago, those things should not surprise you. Jesus told us what to expect. We're only surprised in part because we don't take him seriously enough. We should not be surprised, and we should also not be overwhelmed. You realize that Jesus was not overwhelmed. He was not paralyzed by the world events all around him in his day. And he told us not only what would happen in our day, but he also told us how to respond so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed either. Okay, that's just a small preview of what we'll be doing for the next five weeks. But we want to wrap up this section today. We want to finish well in this, what I think is a very important section in the book of Mark. You remember that this is where Jesus has disclosed that not only is he the Messiah, but that as the Messiah, he's come to this earth for one primary reason. And that reason, is it, it's really hard for his followers to grasp. Because he's not doing what you would expect from any other leader or any other founder of any other social movement, whether it's a religious movement or a secular movement. 
And so his guys are they're struggling, trying to figure out what does it really mean that he's the Messiah. They're having trouble grasping that his primary purpose in coming to this earth was not to live, not to set an example, not to be a role model for other people to emulate, not even to start a social movement. It's not his main purpose for being here. He did not come to the earth to live. He came to die, to die in order to give his life as a ransom for many, to exchange his one life for the lives of many. Disciples are having a really hard time getting on board with that. He's pulled them aside several times, multiple times now, been very explicit. Each time he has spoken as plainly as he possibly can, and they have immediately veered. They've gone off topic because they're longing for something different. They want him to be someone different. And Mark tried to foreshadow all of this for us. If you go back into chapter 8, at the very beginning of this section, you find there another blind man that Jesus healed. And if you remember, there was something a little weird about that healing. Jesus touched the man's eyes to heal them, and they were, kind of. Jesus asked the man, after he touched him, if he could see anything, and the man said he saw people, but they looked like trees walking around. It was a healing. He saw better than he had, but it was not a full restoration of his eyes, so that his eyes saw like everyone else saw. So Jesus touched him again, and this time his eyes were open, and he saw everything clearly. Immediately after that healing is when Peter makes his announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the one promised by God to come to deliver his people. Jesus agrees with that, explains what it means for him to be the Messiah, and Peter immediately takes him aside and starts to rebuke him. Doesn't want to hear that Jesus is going to be rejected, suffer many things, be killed, and then rise again. Peter saw, kind of. He saw, but he didn't see clearly. Neither did the rest of the disciples. And instead of quitting or giving up on them, Jesus just kept working with them, teaching them over and over again so that they could see. That now brings us to today's passage where another blind man is healed. It's not an accident that you have a blind man at the end of this section. Mark has bracketed this section with two blind men who both receive their sight. And so on either end of this section that we've been in for the last couple of months are people who can't see, who are utterly dependent on Jesus healing them so that they can see. In the middle, then, Jesus is what? He's working overtime so that his disciples can see. And in that sense, these two miracles, then, are doing what miracles do in the book of Mark. They are physical healings to teach us something about our spiritual need. Physical healing of these two blind men is a physical healing that we can see to see, say something about the spiritual healing that we can't. So the first healing does what? It teaches us that our spiritual, restoring our spiritual sight is a process, often a process. It doesn't always happen the first time. It takes time. It takes Jesus continuing to work with us. The second healing teaches us how to approach Jesus in order for this process to start. So let's think about the context for today's passage. Verse 46, Jesus is walking with his disciples with a great crowd. They're going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. That's the, fe the feast that remembered what God did for his people when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt about 1,400 years earlier. Jesus and everyone else are going up to Jerusalem 
But Bartimaeus is not. He's sitting there by the roadside, unengaged spiritually, not going up to the feast. It's time to meet with God. God has commanded his people to meet with him at this annual celebration. Bartimaeus is not interested. There's nothing in this celebration that grips him. Nothing that rises up inside of him says, I have to go. I have to be there. God's going to meet with his people, and I want to be there more than I want to be anywhere else. Nothing compelling inside of him. Instead, what is he doing? He's focused on making a living, caught up in the ordinariness of life, probably happy that crowds of people are going by since that might mean a couple extra coins thrown to him. But at the end of this section, Bartimaeus is no longer sitting by the road. By the end of this section, verse 52, he's gone from sitting by the way to now following Jesus on the way, gone from being unengaged to being a follower of Christ, a disciple. And Mark ends this section with him on an up note, a positive beat, which we really need because by this time Mark has shown us example after example after example of how not to be a disciple. He showed us people rebuking Jesus, people longing for greatness and power, people with hardened, stubborn hearts, people not willing to give up everything that they have in order to follow Christ. Mark gave us all of those examples of what it means to be a bad disciple. Why did he do that? Because it's very easy for you and me to be a bad disciple. And we need a good example now to give us some idea of how do we respond to Jesus. Some idea of what faith looks like so that we can follow him when we discover that we haven't been. Maybe you know what that's like. Do this. Think back to that time when you first came to Christ. Think back to that time when Jesus first awakened in you a desire for him. I don't know where that was. Maybe it was a retreat. Maybe it was in personal prayer. It was a time where you had almost an, an electric sense of God and his presence. You knew in that moment that you wanted him and you wanted nothing more than just to be with him. Or maybe you came to a church, or maybe you went to a small group, or some kind of college fellowship, and, and you're just blown away by the love and the joy that you found there among God's people. You realized you could have that too by following Jesus. You, you felt it, and you wanted it. Or maybe you joined a ministry group at some point where you served alongside other people, and you felt alive in a way that you had never felt before. You felt like you were now part of something much bigger than yourself. You had a sense of purpose, sense of mission, a sense of working literally alongside God as he was working to extend his kingdom. Okay, can you think back and remember a time like that? Maybe high school, maybe college, young adult. Times where faith and spirituality were so real that you could feel them. Times where you, where you felt extra alive. Amazing times, but then what happens always? You lose that feeling, don't you? It fades. Life interrupts. Meeting with God and with his people is no longer a priority. It gets pushed to the side. What takes its place? The business of life. The busyness of life. And you end up where? You end up sitting on the side of the road watching other people walk by. People who are excited to go meet with God. People who are excited to be with each other. Celebrate what he's done. 
you sit there watching them walk by and it doesn't move you like it once did. You're not excited about coming to church. It's one more activity. Not excited about meeting with God and his people. Doesn't grip you. Not excited about serving alongside your new brothers and sisters. Instead, you watch people walk by while you are more focused on business as usual. What do you do about that? What do I do about that? Can you and I get back the joy that we once had? Bartimaeus says yes. Yes, you can. Notice here how he responds to Jesus. Verse 50, he sprang up. There's eagerness there. There's excitement, anticipation, joy. Things that weren't there literally a moment ago. He tells you that you can go from being utterly detached to being a disciple. That you can go from sitting by the way to following on the way. How do you do that? Okay, obviously you have to have Jesus open your eyes. If he doesn't, you're not going to see. But a relationship with Jesus is not one-sided. It's not one where you're passive, just kind of hanging out, waiting for him to zap you or do something to you. It's a relationship where you want him too, where you move toward him just like Bartimaeus did. And there are four things that we can learn from Bartimaeus that he did that you and I can do as well. Four th things that will rekindle our passion for Christ, that will renew our desire to follow him. First, you need to recognize who Jesus is. Second, you have to be aware of your need. Third, you have to desperately cry out to him. And fourth, you need to leave everything else behind in order to follow him. Recognize who Jesus is, be aware of your need, desperately cry out to him, and leave behind everything else to get to him. First, recognize who Jesus is. Verse 47, when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus. Jesus had passed him at some point. We learn later that Jesus stopped, called Bartimaeus to him, tells you that he'd gone by, and Bartimaeus was somehow aware that Jesus had gone by. Probably aware, it's changing the crowd, some kind of commotion. And somehow it filters down to him that that's Jesus. And Bartimaeus connects the dots. He's heard of Jesus before, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Son of David. It was a very popular messianic title. It comes out of the Old Testament. Each of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they, they speak of this descendant of David, one who will have the Spirit of God rest on him, one who as king will wisely reign with justice so that Israel will live in safety, a king who would shepherd his people. Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is passing by, and he identifies him as that Messiah, the son of David. The Messiah that the 12 disciples have just barely started to get a glimpse of. But Bartimaeus goes beyond simply making a cold mental analysis. Instead, he makes it personal. He identifies himself, connects himself with Jesus. Verse 51, he calls him rabbi. And I hate doing this. I, I, I hardly ever do this, but I'm going to do it now. That translation is a little weak. 
and, and you can easily see that it's weak when you go to other versions and you realize they don't translate it that way. They actually put the Aramaic word in there that Bartimaeus used, Rabboni. Why does he call him Rabboni? Well, according to the lexicons, that word Rabboni is much larger, bigger than Rabbi, but it's also personal. And so it means something like my great one, my Lord, my master. And so Bartimaeus is not simply identifying Jesus as a leader. He's not turning in a report, an impersonal report. That's the Messiah. Instead, for Bartimaeus, this is personal. My Lord, my master, my Messiah, the one God sent not to rule over and shepherd Israel, but to rule over and shepherd me. At this point, Bartimaeus already sees clearer than most everybody else in the crowd. If you want to rekindle desire for Jesus, you want more longing to follow him as a disciple, you have to see him for who he is. That he did not come to save and rescue people. He did. But more importantly, he came to save and rescue you in particular. How do you learn to see that? Lent is a perfect time for that. It's a time, as Pastor David said earlier, that uh, is a time of self-reflection that leads us to realize how much we really need this Jesus. This Jesus who came to die in our place and then rise again so that we can live with him forever. Very simple. The gospel is very simple. But we forget it. And so we need this time of year to reflect and to remember it's so easy to make the same mistake the 12 disciples made over and over again. To gradually view Jesus through the lens of your own expectations, through the lens of your own desires, to use him to justify your agenda and to try to drive your agenda forward. Seeing the disciples do that over the last several weeks, they expected Jesus to be a social reformer, a political liberator. And so they constantly read him through the lens of their own expectations. And they kept getting surprised when Jesus came back and said, no, that's not it. That's not why I came. You can't turn me into the poster child for your own social and national ambitions. He kept saying it, but it's really easy to fall back into that way of thinking. And very helpful then to have this larger global church calendar impact us during this time that the church calls Lent. Time to remind ourselves what Jesus's fundamental mission was so that we end up following him not trying to get him to follow us now there's a lot of good resources out there I'd urge you to find one uh, to read through sort through meditate through uh, during Lent if you're looking for suggestions I have just two Dorothy Sayers wrote a series of 12 plays called the man born to be king Plays were produced by the BBC in 1941-42, and they unfold Jesus' entire life with a very strong emphasis on the final week of his life. It's very much like the Gospels, where the focus is on his passion. C.S. Lewis thought so highly of this series of plays that he read this every year in preparation for Lent. And, and I get that. Uh, I understand why. Her insights into Jesus, into his life, her scholarship are all spot on, and her insights are eye-opening. Uh, you see things about Jesus and about following him that maybe you might have missed from reading the Gospels. She's very biblical, 
and yet she's got a great way of, with words. Uh, and, and so she creates this narrative and drama that uh, a number of times just moved me to tears. I read these plays this past year. I just read one uh, once a week on my Sabbath, and I, I think I would highly recommend it as a way of helping you to see Jesus the Messiah a little bit more clearly. The Man Born to be King by Dorothy Sayers. Different approach would be Paul Tripp's Journey to the Cross. He writes this specifically as a 40-day Lenten devotional focused on what Jesus has done for us and how what Jesus did actually impacts us. This is what Sally and I are reading after dinner during this year during Lent. So I can't give you a full review on the book. I've not read through it, but we already started it because we know that we're not going to be able to get to this every night. Uh, and so we started early. We'll probably have to go a little bit later. Already finding it very worthwhile. Let me read just part of one section from one of the days, give you a little bit of a feel for it. This is Trip. It is important to dedicate a season of every year to sit under the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ once again. Under the shadow of the cross, sin doesn't surprise us anymore, doesn't depress us anymore, and doesn't move us to deny or defend. Under the shadow of the cross, we remember who we are and what it is that we're dealing with. We quit pointing fingers and begin crying out for help. We're reminded that we are not in this battle alone. Under the shadow of the cross, we get our sanity back, admitting who we are and what it is that we so desperately need. The shadow of the cross is a place of peace and protection that can be found nowhere else. That's again Paul Tripp, Journey to the Cross. If you're going to go from sitting by the way as Jesus walks past to following on the way, you need to recognize who he is and why he's on that road going to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Let me urge you then, like I'm urging myself, take some time during Lent to refocus on him and what he came to do. That's point one. Point two, be aware of your need. What does Bartimaeus ask for? Two things. One, he cries out, verse 47, for mercy. He sees so clearly what the many in the rest of the crowd do not. He sees that his starting point in a relationship with the Messiah is that he needs mercy. He needs undeserved kindness from the Messiah. He knows that he has nothing to offer in this bargain, and so he's not coming to someone who's a little bit above him, trying to make a deal with him. Hey, Jesus, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. It's not negotiating. Why is that? He has nothing to negotiate with. In this relationship, what is it that Bartimaeus brings? He brings need. That's the basis of a relationship with Jesus. You don't come to him saying, hey, I've got a pretty decent life here. Got some things going that I'm pretty happy with, but I could use a couple add-ons here to really make life sing. Jesus, could you just add a few things to me? Bartimaeus knows that his life is not pretty decent. He's not bargaining to see if somehow he can make things better. He's asking for something he has no right to ask for. Something that he's not earned. Something he has no ability to pay for. What is this that he wants? What What's he looking for? He's not asking for wealth 
or power or greatness, not asking to lord it over others, to have them look up to him like the disciples have been asking Jesus for that. He's not looking to be greater than humans, superhuman. He just wants to be human, wants to be fully human. He knows that, he's, that he isn't. He knows that he has a need, and he brings this need to Jesus. Verse 51, Rabbi, Rabboni, let me recover my sight. What's he asking there? Let me see like other people see. Take them out of the picture. Let me see like I was made to see. Restore to me what it means to be an image of God. Take away my brokenness. There's enough glory in simply being a human. I would just love to have that. Will you please make me a fully restored human being who functions the way that I'm supposed to function? And some of us really need to learn from Bartimaeus here. Because for some of us, we think that having a need is shameful. That it's embarrassing. That it shows that we didn't do what we were supposed to do when we were supposed to do it in the way that we were supposed to do it. We think that having a need means what? It, it means that we failed. And we've learned what to do with failure. You cover failure up, make sure no one knows about it. Bartimaeus doesn't see his need that way. It's really important. Pay attention to this. Bartimaeus does not come from a Western nation. Does not come from somewhere set in the modern world. Doesn't come from a nation that emphasizes the rugged individual. That tells you it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. You just be you. As long as you think you're okay, you're fine. He doesn't come from that way of thinking. Instead, he comes from a more traditional society. One in which your life either brings shame or honor to the rest of the community. One in which you work hard to submerge or even deny your weaknesses, your neediness. And Bartimaeus doesn't do that. He does not submerge his neediness, doesn't deny it. He sits there crying out for mercy because he realizes that his need does not disqualify him from talking to Jesus. Instead, his need is the basis for approaching Jesus in the first place. You don't need to be ashamed that you can't make your life work. I know that sounds really counterintuitive to some of you, but it's what you see here in Scripture. You don't need to be ashamed of your need. Rather, you need to embrace times when you can't make your life work. You need to embrace your need and allow that need then to be the vehicle that actually connects you with Christ. And I suspect that God is making that possible for some of you right now. That he's bringing you to the end of yourselves and the end of your strength. Making it very clear that you can't live like a free human being should. That, that you just keep seeing your need everywhere you go. Some of you know what I'm talking about right now. Because some of you are struggling to make life work. And you feel like no matter what you do, things just keep falling apart. You can't do your job like you want to. You're not the person that you want to be in your relationships. You're constantly seeing your inability to live life well. You're always seeing your need. Now think about that. Why is that? <laughs> you're strong. You're gifted. You're smart. You've been successful. And life is not working out well. How, how does that go together? How does that make any sense? 
Well, think a moment. Is it possible that maybe God's involved in that? That he's actually at work helping you see what's true about you. Helping you see what's always been true, that, that you have needs. Needs that you've tried to cover up, that you've tried to deal with on your own, that he's just not letting you cover up anymore. Needs that tell you very clearly, you're not God. You don't have unlimited strength, inexhaustible wisdom. Needs that tell you, stop trying to clean yourself up. Instead, embrace your need, your need of him. Don't run from it, don't try to fix it on your own, but let your inability drive you to him. Why? Because he will not turn away from you. That's why he came to earth in the first place. To rescue you. To do for you what you could not do for yourself. To have mercy on you. If you want to have a renewed passion for Jesus, then one, you have to see that he's come to rescue you. Two, rescue you out of the depths of your great need, which brings us to point three. Since that's true, then desperately cry out to him for help. Bartimaeus does here what is so hard for many of us. He stands out from the rest of the crowd, and he just doesn't care. Verse 47, he cries out, and he cries out so loudly that verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Now, we've seen that word rebuke in the book of Mark before. It's what Jesus did with demons and demonic influences. It's what Peter did to Jesus when he thought Jesus was going against God. It's not a light word that you casually toss around. The crowd rebukes him. Many tell him in no uncertain terms to shut up. Tell him that he's not in line with what God is doing in that moment and he needs to stop. And Bartimaeus doesn't. Verse 48, he cried out all the more. Why? He knows he has a need that he cannot meet on his own. He knows that this is the Messiah, which means what? This is his only chance. And so he goes all in. He's desperate. And the only thing that calms him down is when Jesus calls him. Crowd's opposition just adds fuel to the fire, makes him more earnest, more vocal. He's made up his mind. He's not about to be denied. He will be heard. Puts all of his emotions, all of his neediness on display in a non-Western culture. And so will you. If you know the depth of your need, and if you know that Jesus is the Messiah who can meet you in your need, if you know those two things, then you will cry out. And you'll keep crying out if you know that he's the only one who can meet you. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther, German monk, felt crushed. He'd been taught that he had to live a good life, had to live a righteous life in order for God to save him. But his conscience bothered him. It told him that no matter how good he was, no matter how much he tried, he just wasn't good enough for God. And his response then was, I hated God. Because all he saw was a God of punishment. A God who threatened to punish him for something that he couldn't do anything about. Now listen carefully to what Luther did. He has a bothered conscience, hatred of God. He, this is what he writes. I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 
and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. He's referring there to the place where the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that the just person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. I began to understand that the merciful God justifies us by faith. All at once, I felt I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Now, do you hear what he's saying? Uh, not theologically. Do you hear what he's saying personally? Do you hear what his testimony is? Follow the timeline here. He says, I was raging. My conscience was disturbed. I was not okay. I knew I had a need that I could not meet on my own, a need that I could not solve on my own. So what did I do? He writes, I constantly badgered St. Paul. I meditated night and day on those words. I turned back to God, to his word, and I kept hammering away at him, going to the only one who could do anything for me. I went to the only one who could actually meet my need. And I did so without letting up. Until what? Until at last, by the mercy of God, all at once I felt I'd been born again. That I'd entered into paradise itself. That God met me. Where? At the point of my need. And when he met me, I broke through. That's the testimony of God's people. That when you realize your need, that you can't handle it yourself, and that there is no power on earth that can handle it either, then you turn to God and you don't let go until what? Until he responds to you. That's what I'm urging for you, for me. When you see your need, have the same attitude that Martin Luther had, that Bartimaeus had. Decide that you're going to cry out until you break through, until you hear Jesus call you. If you want the joy and the excitement of following Christ, you need to recognize he's the Messiah who came to rescue you. You need to be aware of the depths of your need. You need to desperately cry out to him. And fourth, you have to leave your former life behind. It's a very interesting detail there in verse 15. Bartimaeus threw off his cloak. It gives you a picture of what? That, that he's wearing something around himself and he yanks it off to go to where Jesus is and I think that, that's just odd. <laughs> why, why would you do something like that? Here's sometimes where a parallel translation can be helpful. You read through the parallel translations, and you're not getting a sense that he's getting undressed. Instead, you get this sense that he's throwing his cloak aside. He's casting it away. He's flinging it away. Commentaries help you make sense of that image. They talk about how a beggar would spread his cloak out in front of him so that when people gave him alms, they could drop their gift onto his cloak. Kind of like when you go into the city and someone's busking. They're playing an instrument. They've got their open instrument case in front of them. It's their way of asking you to contribute something in appreciation of what you're hearing from them. But it's also a way for them to let you see what other people have dropped there. Or you can see the seed money that they put in there. It tends to loosen your grip on your own wallet. In that sense, Barnabas's cloak was both his advertisement of what he was doing, that he's begging, and it's a tool of the trade. It's a means of receiving what people gave him, maybe even a means of encouraging him to do so. Bartimaeus takes that cloak and throws it to the side to come to Jesus. Now, what's he doing there? 
couple things. One, he's saying very physically, I am no longer defined by my past. I am no longer defined by my need. Not defined by where I've struggled to be all that God meant for me to be. It's no longer my identity. It no longer defines me. Now I have a new identity. I am defined by my very personal relationship with the Messiah. This relationship now shapes my self-understanding, my self-awareness, and it shapes me more than anything I've previously experienced in life. It's no longer defined himself as a broken human being. Cast the cloak aside. It's no longer an identity, and it's no longer what he relies on to make his way through life. That's a little scary. He's leaving behind not only the identity of being a blind beggar, he's also leaving behind an established way of making a living. And he's saying that in turning to Jesus, I'm putting all my eggs in the Jesus basket. All of my trust in him. Instead of holding on to this other thing, trusting it to provide for my needs. Instead, I'm going to trust him that he'll give me some other way of meeting my needs. And some of you know what that feels like. You've left relationships or you've left the possibility of relationships because you wanted to follow Jesus more. Because you knew that you could not have Jesus and those other relationships at the same time. And you did that. You left them. But that means what? Now you're in that place of having to rely on Jesus to meet you in those times. A place where you have no other options. It's a scary place to be. Or maybe you've left a career. We just commissioned a family to go overseas a couple weeks ago. Left careers to follow Jesus. Not everybody does that. Some of you may. Some of you may feel a call at some point in your life to leave the career that you've relied on. That's scary. It means you're going to have to what? You're going to have to rely on Jesus to meet your needs in a different way than what you're used to. Every disciple has to leave their past identity to value their new relationship with Jesus, and every disciple has to leave what they used to rely on to make their life work in order to rely on Jesus. It's not optional. It's what Jesus called the other disciples to do. It's what Bartimaeus now does. It's what the rich young ruler could not bring himself to do. Bartimaeus does this because he thinks having Jesus call him is worth more than everything he used to have. If you want the joint excitement of following Christ, then you need to recognize he's the Messiah come to rescue you. You have to be aware of the depths of your need. You have to desperately cry out to him and you have to leave the identity, the comfort of your former life behind when he calls you. And when you do that, what do you discover? You find that Jesus is the merciful Messiah. That he interrupts what he's doing to welcome the smallest, weakest person with the most needs. They think, why? Why would he do that? Surely he has much bigger things going on right now. Things that are more important than being interrupted by one more person who needs something from him. Why does he stop for Bartimaeus? And maybe more to the point, how can you have confidence that he'll stop for you? Well, remember the context from last week. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem where he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. They're going to condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Gentiles will spit on him, mock him, flog him, and kill him, after which he'll rise from the dead. Jesus 
is so determined to go on that road that his disciples are amazed at what they're seeing. They're amazed and they're a little frightened because the full burden of his ministry right now is coming down on his shoulders. The very last chance for humanity to be rescued from God's wrath is staring him in the face. History has come to a crisis point. And yet Jesus hears one lonely cry from one broken human being. A broken human being who can add absolutely nothing to him or his ministry. And Jesus stops and calls him and heals him. Why? Because this is what he came to do. The crowd came to celebrate Passover. Do you remember the time when God accepted a sacrifice from them, a lamb? So that when God judged sin, judged their sin and Egypt's sin, God would accept the lamb's death as a substitute for them and he would pass over them. They would live and not die. It was an act of judgment that set his people free. Egypt could no longer hold them and they left in full view of their enemies to go to a home that God had waiting for them. Passover was the judgment that saved them, gave them their lives back. And so every year the Israelites came to Jerusalem to remember what God had done for them to free them. And then afterward, they would go back to their homes. Jesus, however, came for a very different reason. He came to be the Passover lamb, to offer his life as an atonement, a substitute, a sacrifice for them, one that would not simply cover their sin, like the lamb's blood, but a sacrifice that would remove their sin from them completely. And afterward, they would not simply go back to their homes, to their old ways of life, but his sacrifice meant for them meant that he would take them back to his home, that they would be with him. So why does he stop for this one blind man? It's very simple the man demonstrated that Jesus had come for him. The man cried out. He wanted Jesus. Why does he cry out? Jesus says, verse 52, that he had faith. He had faith that Jesus could make him whole, that Jesus could restore his humanity. You remember that faith is a gift from God. This man cries out because God has already stirred something up in him, already given him the gift of faith, and the man is simply responding, crying out. And in that cry, Jesus hears the cry of faith and stops and heals him so that what? So the man can now be with him. Friends, it does not matter how you cry out. It does not matter how much strength you have to cry out with. It matters that you cry out. Because any cry from you to God, asking him to restore your humanity, is a gift to you from God. That God himself will answer. So cry out to him. Recognize how needy you are. Let your neediness move you to Jesus, and he will stop for you and heal you, and you will be absolutely thrilled to follow him. Lord Jesus, you paid an unimaginable cost for us, and we are grateful. Lord, stir your people. Give us the gift of faith. Faith that believes that you will energize us to follow you wherever you lead, 
even if it's on the way to your cross. Lord, allow us to wake up out of our sleepiness, our consumption with the things of life that leave us sitting by the road. Lord, let us move along the road with you. And for that, Jesus, we will be grateful not just for eternity, but we'll be grateful right now. Thank you for coming. In Jesus' name, amen.